Welcome to Care Talk, Bruce. Uh, you know, we've all been through an awful lot with COVID. And one of the interesting things about COVID from a healthcare perspective is there was a lot of acceleration and in innovation. What do you think are the most important accelerants and innovations that should stick? And what have we learned from that period? Yeah, I would say there's probably, when you sort of classify the innovations, maybe you put them in two different buckets. One is around uh, the holistic care, really looking at um, the individual in a much more broader fashion than just the treatment that they need at the, at the particular time, and I'll come back to that. And then the second is convenience is the ability for us to uh, have a much uh, deeper thought process around how do we make it convenient for people to obtain care. And so just to build a little bit on that. On the holistic side, we, we, we do see uh, growth in the areas around like behavioral health has become really important. And so it's just not about the health of somebody. It's about, obviously, their mental health. We see a lot of that. Social determinants of health have become an active part of that. Uh, but in addition, we're also seeing interventions that are much more oriented to the individual. So, you know, managing diabetes and other areas like that, which was was important, but it's become much more important because it's much broader than just the treatment of diabetes. It's really the, the, the ability to keep it uh, keep the individual stabilized. The second thing that we've also seen is is, is obviously the use of technology in the uh, in in healthcare, and we've seen it in a few different ways. One is around uh, the convenience, so virtual health is, is there. Virtual health and behavioral health has obviously been an acceleration uh, over the last few years. Virtual health and t- with telehealth has been a been growth. Virtual health, uh, telehealth, and uh, the assisted with a nurse or some um, technician in the home is an example of that. So the expansion into the home has been there. In addition, we also see you know, growing opportunity in remote monitoring and the use of technology there. And then on the technology side, you also see this ability to, you know, utilize AI and machine learning. And that's probably an area where I, I like a great growth going forward as uh, the, identify, the identification of more context around the individual, their clinical context, but as importantly, how they engage. And I, I think today, one of the challenges of healthcare is less about the science, but which science is greatly evolving. It's more around how do you engage with the individual? And so what in, you know, the, 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 um, the, the new era of artificial intelligence has been announced every five years for the last 30. What's different this time and how are you using the data you have yeah. in, in a different way to engage with, con- with yeah. consumers and patients? And I, I would say, you know, established organizations that have been around a long time that have technology that is um, somewhat dated, so I hate to say this, but we still have COBOL. Uh, level uh, programs in our organization, and it's been so a, does every health insurer in America. Right, that's right, and that's that's really it. And so you you have to evolve the technology platforms that you have, and that we've we've invested in a lot of that. And that that evolution is utilizing the power of the cloud, not so much from a storage point of view, but the ability to have the power to do AI. And so, for example, we're, we today. Uh, have an AI that uh, is taking images that we receive from practices because the interoperability is not not uh, an area where it's fully uh, deployed in the healthcare system. And we digest that image and turn it into usable data that is then used to create an expert system on behalf of our clinicians to make decisions. And that that amount of data that is being crunched 
all the way from being able to convert it from uh, a, a text image to uh, usable data and be able to do that in a way that is dealing with the nuances of you know, the medical language. Uh, some people call it you know, one particular disease, another will call it another disease, or it might be a particular treatment. And being able to utilize that, that takes a lot of compute power. And what we've seen is being able to do that in the cloud and be able to ramp up and ramp down that, that cloud. And so what, 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 what I've seen in our company is the ability to get to a more contemporary platform that you have the data lakes, you have the cloud-based uh, computing, and then in addition you have the analytics capability to do it. Really is the, the combination of those are important as opposed to just one of those. And, and, and the real benefit of that then is humans out, machines in that it allows you to actually bring down your cost per transaction. Yeah, I would is, that the, is that really the yeah, biggest edge? I would say that it, 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 it allows individuals to, to do something at a higher level than they could do before. And so, you know, we're taking the use of uh, the work that I was just mentioned, and a clinician could spend 45 minutes on a particular um, intervention. Today, they're being able to do it in four or five minutes. So yes, our costs are coming down. It's a more enjoyable job for them. And in addition, it's much more effective for, for uh, the ultimate outcome uh, that we're trying to obtain. So we find it, it's a win-win-win for everybody. Mm -hmm. It really is. And how have you used AI to, to engage with members differently? Because you... you These you are not part of the questions. No, no, no. List. We're going to go with you. Really strip here. <laughs> And you're surprised. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so, so you because you you, er, you early on were very thoughtful about the psychographic profiles and the archetypes of the different consumers and patients you have as a way for humanity to meet patients where they are. Have you used AI in that to engage with patients differently? We do. I, I mean, we we are constantly trying to learn uh, about the individual. And as I mentioned before, there's multiple levels of learning. One is just the context they're in. And what I mean is, you know, what's in their home, uh, you know, what, what, what really is important to them, what are areas of, uh, of, of clinical need they have, so, and then what interventions they have, and then in addition, how do they want to engage? Meaning, do they want somebody to come to the home? Do they want to go to the office? Do they want to do it over the phone? So there's a whole host of contexts, and that's where I, we see AI being most effective. Now, I would say we have a long maturity of this. We're not we're early in this cycle, and I think healthcare is early in this cycle. But I, I think this personalization to engage with individuals is, is really a great opportunity for healthcare overall because it's contextualization. And, you know, this, I know we always talk about Amazon and, and, and how they order books and so on. That's a, I don't want to be disrespectful, that's a fairly simple context. Very simple transaction. Because you, they know what you ordered the last time and now you need to put it, what, what, this is something you would buy, buy now. When you think about the complexity of healthcare and all the different aspects of, of it, whether it's your wealth or health or what your, where you live and what your, what your preferences are, it's really complicated. But I, I look at that as the really great opportunity for healthcare in the long run. And that's why I talk about this holistic care as being much more important because you're able to get that context. Well, and, and, and now that I work at Walgreens, please feel comfortable, you know, insulting Amazon as much as you'd like. Sure, there you go. Um, I did that on purpose. Uh, so, so you, you, you touched on interoperability, and we've talked a little bit about that back and forth over the years. 
Where are we on the road to an interoperable system, which is a frustrating te- you know, technology? It seems like a technology problem that only healthcare can't solve, but is solved in all of the other parts of our life, whether yeah. it's... Yes, yeah, it's, it's been talked about a lot, um, uh, but I'm, I'm very bullish on the opportunities over the next you know, five years or so. And the reason for that is I think the Fire Interoperable API has brought some standards to, the, to, the, to it, and, and they can be evolved and so on, but we find it as a very helpful aspect of that. In addition, I think some of the regulations are putting the industries and um, my the payer industry the provider industry uh in a in a necessary need to advance and i i think that push is really really important i remember a number of years ago when uh, sema was in in the uh, head of cms she was really pushing interoperability and i remember sitting in the Roosevelt room, and she wanted she she got us together with the with uh, the president, and, and and really was pushing. And she asked, I said, you just need to make us do this. Rewards and all the other things aren't going to do it. You just need to make it, and it's the right thing to do for the industry. And I know it's painful for all of us, including us as a company, uh, but it's it's wrong to have fragmented information and people not have access to it. And so I think the regulations and, and where we are today is pushing us not as fast as I'd like to see, but I do believe it's an opportunity for payers and providers to come together deeper. We have been working with Epic over the last, I think, 36 months now. We have about 100 hospitals now that are on the Epic plan that we are putting information in the workflow on preauthorization, uh, the ability for the... In uh, real time? In real time, and, and drug um, uh, orders to be incorporated in, in, the, in the workflow so that someone doesn't... Uh, someone understands the cost of their drug at the time that the, it's being dispensed as opposed to when they get to the drugstore. Okay. And I didn't say order it online or something like that. Um, and and, and I, I just feel the opportunity to remove friction in the system, to improve the experience for the, for the member and, frankly, to, and the patient, and in addition, to reduce the cost of both the provider and, and payers. I just feel the interoperability is there. And I, I would love to see the organiz- the healthcare industry push that deeper. And when you look at or, um, industries that have really advanced the, uh, the, the flow of information, like the financial services sector, I mean, can you imagine what, is it, what that's allowed for innovation and development and the inefficiencies that it's taken out of the, out of the system? And so I, I just look at that as a great opportunity where everyone wins at it. Uh, and I, I just feel, I, and I hope the industry will have the same perspective that we have, is push it and help the industry become much more connected. Well, I'm not sure your optimism is warranted, given the fact that healthcare has fought it, kicking and screaming yeah, 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 yeah. each step of the way. Yeah. But you've actually used data and information to hook yourself more closely to providers and provider systems. What does that mean for the patient? Like, what happens when you are as integrated with yeah. either your your physician groups or your hospitals at, at, in a way that you think makes the most sense in yeah, addition yeah. to... Yeah, we, we do it a few ways. I mean, one is just in the flow of information we offer our value-based uh, payment relations that uh, we really want to give them information so that they can understand how to manage risk. And, and frankly, that's been a, 
uh, tenant of the company, really, since we owned hospitals and we were a staff model. I mean, we, we used some of the same architecture in, in being able to do that. So that this, the ability for providers to manage, take risk and manage risk and then utilize the information, whether it's information that we, we provide them a cloud-based system if they don't have one, or for many of our more sophisticated value-based relationships, we will, you know, incorporate it into their workflow so that they then can utilize it in a managing risk. Uh, so that's one area. I th the second area is really around how do we help them in, in areas like STARS on the, the quality side or risk adjustment and other areas like that where we can provide some help to them and being able to understand how what things need to be done. So if this patient isn't coming in, uh, it might not be a value-based relationship, but if we can provide them the information about the patient, the next time they come in, ask them about an eye exam or a particular um, cancer diet. Uh, 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 diagnostic or something like that. So the ability to continue to share information to allow the better care... Creates a better right. patient experience. Yeah. In, 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 have you seen differences in performance where you're providing the data and oh, providing yeah. the tools? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, what, kind, what would be good examples of well, that? We, we, today, we see value-based relationships with information that we provide, being able to have, you know, about... 25 to 30 percent better star scores. Their net promoter score is significantly higher, and their cost of care is is significantly lower by about 10 to 15 percent. We see. Um, but you know, the other thing on the interoperability side, and this is what we do for our members, just to get, to build on that, is is that we actually, if you go on to our website this time of year and you want to uh, look at a plan, they if they authorize us, which isn't a, 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 a it's the blue button method that uh, CMS came out with a while back. Uh, we will take the information, their Medicare claims, and we will bring it in, and we will we will then run a, uh, uh, the uh, analysis to bring back what is the best plan for them. What's their what drug usage they have? What doctors they see? to the person to the based person. on their particular and history. It takes about twenty seconds. Wow. Um, and but that's a but that's an example where power is really data putting into the individual user, and that for them to then be able to do utilize that to personalize it is the power of bringing the information across the platform of healthcare into an area where it's precise for the individual. And are you building all that technology yourself? Because if, effectively, you then become a tech enabling, you know, sort of enterprise. Yeah, yeah. we're providers. We do. I mean, obviously, we use partners um, to to help us with that. But um, but we have a lot of capability internally. What we have found over the years is with really good partners that can offer the technical uh, support, and then we we then have the business uh, knowledge. The the combination of those two help. So you, you touched a little bit on risk adjusters, which has gotten a lot of attention recently. Mm -hmm. Certainly, at, with my friends at Cigna. Uh, any comment on on, on what you, on, on the status of risk adjusters and kind of the future of them? Because there's obviously a, a fair amount of regulatory interest, and yet people have a variety of of, of health backgrounds. I mean, how, how do what, what's your view of it, and how do we how do we get it right? Yeah, that's. I'll try to be salient in my in my answer there because there are so many levels to that, and just for. For the audience, the risk adjuster within Medicare is an important element of Medicare Advantage, and it's an, it's important because it allows uh, uh, companies like Humana to be orient, oriented to the higher 
acuity um, uh, patients. I always say Medicare Advantage is an upside-down insurance because you're incentivized to take the more uh, unhealthy. And, to, and I think that's a wonderful opportunity. And with guaranteed issues. It wasn't always that way. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I remember when Medicare Choice was around. Um, but it's a great opportunity because it really allows you to engage where individuals are needing it the most. And, that. Uh, and how it was developed, it was developed based on a comparison to Medicare fee-for-service, both in how they uh, d determine the, the rate, but also the, the error rate. Because this, the, the accuracy of risk adjustment in Medicare fee-for-service is very low. And it's that error rate is why people are getting in trouble, is, is um, the compliance side is oriented to there is no error rate. The payment side assumes there is an error rate. And that sort of difference is what, what is creating this sort of void in the, in the healthcare system uh, and what you see challenges like Cigna and others, uh, United is in there, Anthem's in there, that, that there's just this misunderstanding. And I believe that we gotta get this corrected because we can, and, and when healthcare has this grayness to it, nothing good comes out of it. And that's really what the industry is trying to work with CMS on. And we're hoping over the coming, coming year that we'll be able to get this, this solved. But the, the lawsuits that you see and the investigations from the Justice Department are wrapped around that perception of, is there an error rate and the, the, or is there not? And the, the system was set up based on an error rate. And do you get to a level of, of Medicare Advantage participation where you don't need risk adjusters anymore or where it becomes more population, general population? Yeah, I think I, I, I do believe um, we're, we're approaching that op opportunity there. Um, but I, I still, there's still 60% of the population that is represented in Medicare fee-for-service, and you need to have that some, some reflected in there. But there is an evolution that I think could could happen to that. So, Bruce, you're, you're saying a lot of great things about government, like in terms of pushing interoperability. And I'm not running for election. <laughs> and and, 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 and uh, uh, you're being very balanced about risk adjusters. Uh, government regulations, Washington right now, force for good or ill for healthcare? It depends on where. I, um, you know, I, I can say some areas probably need more regulation. I won't go into that. Um, and then other areas probably less regulated. I, you know, I've been in healthcare for a long time, and and you know, you're, it's it's an area where uh, that, you know, is it governmental provided or is it private pr provided? And those those partnerships between private and public um, can get complicated, and eras go and come, and that. And I, I think you have to live with the the regulation that's there. I, I have found over the years that that when it is Practical. There are removal of regulations that 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 happen, and and when there is need, it eventually gets there. Uh, so I will be very diplomatic and not not uh, say that everything needs to be unregulated and everything needs to be regulated. I think in the the business that we uh, uh, have and do, there's a responsibility to to a broader broader um, population, and that responsibility, I think, is also needs to have some regulation to it. But some of the things you touched upon, like the, 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 the regulations loosening... None of these questions were in this. I mean, we are... <laughs> this, 
I'll ask you. I'll ask you what I said. I don't okay, well, let's, let's pick no, one. No, 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 no. Please continue. But the, but the, I, I'm surprised you didn't come back to the, you know, there's a lot of pushback on virtual care post the end, you know, looking towards the end of the public health emergency yeah. and potentially a lot of the state and local restrictions coming back. Do uh, you want to comment on that? Because obviously I think it's been a, a, a boon in some ways for connecting, particularly hard to reach yeah. patients like yeah. those who are suffering from behavioral yeah. issues. And this, this is where payment models that really encourage quality and cost become really demonstrate the, the durability. In our business, when someone's on value-based, it is more around what is best for the patient as opposed to what's the most efficient way. Not the, it's more what is the most effective way. What is the most effective way from a cost of care point of view and, and how do we prevent downstream cost and from an experience and quality point of view. And I, I just feel if the more we can get payments that are bundled together that re- represent a, a cost and quality, these sort of, well, am I going to do it inpatient or am I going to do it outpatient? Am I doing it in the home? Am I doing it in the... In the um, Virtually, those become less of the question because it's not about, okay, I get paid this way and I get, and this is how I sort of have to do it. We see it in the home health business today. You know, we own the largest home health company. We bought it not because we wanted to be in in fee-for-service home health. We bought it because we believe intently on that home is a place where it can provide convenient care, better outcomes as a result of it, and it has to evolve. And so one of the one of the big things we're pushing for is much more value-based payment models in the home. And so I, I, I understand that there can be a maximization of value because it's, you know, sort of this turn, but we have a philosophy that it is really the right thing to do for the, for the patient or, our, or the member and, and the, from an insurance point of view, then let's make sure we're finding the right payment model to do that. Well, and I, obviously you're not going to argue, I'm not going to argue with, with, with more care to the home. That's right. obviously what we're, we're trying to do both at CareCentrics and at Walgreens. Uh, but do you think that's a threat to the traditional models, the traditional institutional models of where people get care? I, I think it has, uh, sure, every change has a threat to somebody. But if you think, uh, you know, quite, you know, Beloved Clayton Christensen, I, I think, had a, a very simple model that he always, you know, he, he can boil complicated things down to simplicity. And, he, and I remember having dinner with him one night. He says, Bruce, if you just make two bets in healthcare, you'll be right. And, and the first is he just said there's structural change happening as a result of payment changes and technology. Those are two th- enablers that's going to cause change. And what, what you'll see is, is, it will become less specialized. More will be done by more generalists as a result of the things we were just talking about, AI and all the expert systems that can be created from there and the ability to, you know, radiology is a good example of that. You can take images and, and facilitate a much quick, quicker analysis of, of it. So it's going to move from specialists. I'm not saying specialists are not important. It's just less need for specialists down to even digital self, self-service. And that push is going to be a continued trend. And where, so that's who does it, and where it's being done is the second part. And it's going to move, continue to be the institutional settings. Not saying that institutions won't, there will always be a need for institutions, but the care will continue to get pushed down to ultimately the home and self-service. And again, it depends on what kind of care you're getting. And if you just took those two trends, it is going to happen. 
It's because of payment model change, technology, and so on. So you can fight it, and and you know, and fight it as long as you can. But the 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 trend is there. Now again, it's not everything's going to home, and not everything's going to a, you know, a CNA. But but the ability to continue to push that down is the right thing for the healthcare system. It's the right thing for the patient because it's more convenient. And frankly, it's the right thing for us as an industry to continue to push. Well, one of the things that did come up in, in our prep call mm-hmm. is sort of the, 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 this, the, the disconnect between people who see a system that costs too much and they want to get paid more and the, and, and the patients and the taxpayers who just can't afford what they're getting today. And I thought that, you know, you, you want to get into the, like the, what, the, what you see, the challenge yeah. of so- yeah. solving that yeah. cost I mean, of quality and care. There's, there's a host of different, I mean, McKenzie, you know, has done a, a great study on this and, and, you know, breaks down where the inefficiencies are. But one area that's, I think, just a great opportunity for uh, payers and providers to come together is the inefficiencies of the system from an administrative point of view. And we've talked a lot about interoperability today, but to continue to work together as a partnership to take the cost out of the system from the point of view of automating, of connecting, of being able to use the the sharing of the information to make downstream and upstream decisions much easier. And I just feel, I think they estimated there's 300 trillion or 400 trillion dollars in the system uh, that 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 is that is there that we can take out. And I think, you know, Sam Walton early in his years, he went to the the vendors, so to speak, and said, listen, let's work together to take the inefficiencies out of the system um, and utilize technology to do that and logistics and the the efficiencies of logistics. And, you know, for all of us, we benefited from that. We had a lower cost of goods for us that that prices came down. I just feel there's a wonderful opportunity for the industry to do that. And I think we're at the cusp of of it as a result of the technology that's, that's rolling out. And frankly, the pressures we're all facing as an industry. Well, speaking of those pressures, how, 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 do you, how are we going to solve the drug pricing conundrum? I mean, you know, when you and I started in our careers, you know, hospital costs for commercial payers were the, one of the biggest costs. And now it's drugs. Dr- drugs are just dramatically outpacing. And it's not just the cool new biologics. It's the yeah. stable chemical yeah. compounds. I mean, as one of the biggest purchasers, and as well as owning a PBM, what's the solution? Yeah. I, I, there's a... There's a there's multiple levels there. I mean, obviously, the development area is, is one area, and, and I think the opportunity to continue to utilize the efficiency and, and, and drug development, uh, I think we have a great, great opportunity to do that. In fact, I was uh, talking to a CEO. I, I got a, a prescript, a, a, an investment document a number of weeks ago from somebody that was raising money, and they were, uh, they were taking AI and and the ability to, to recreate se- cells and putting it in a, a wafer and being able to do, not have to do animal testing anymore and could do thousands of, of testing in, 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 this, in this wafer. And it was just amazing. And talk about just reduced cost and reduced time was an example of that. So I think there's efficiencies there. Obviously, the drug pricing is ultimately where it comes down to, and I think you're going to continue to see pressure put on payer uh, on I'm sorry pharma companies to to not utilize U.S. as the most profitable area as we subsidize the rest of the world. I just see that. Obviously, the 
the bill that was passed in the fall of this, I mean, the summer of this year is an example of that, where now, you know, certain drugs are going to have to go through. A, so you're supportive of that. So we start yeah, to have to have yeah. a little bit more yeah. pressure on. And, and then the distribution area, the PBM areas will continue to be under pressure. You know, for our PBM, since it's mostly Part D, in fact, it's 99% Part D and Medicare Advantage, we have to put all our rebates back into the insurance pricing. Uh, so we don't make any dollars off of, of the rebates, which I think is a healthy, healthy exercise. I think the commercial business is going to move to there, that it will come more into either the rebates or to the point of sale. Now, it's evolving to the point of sale before our rebates subsidized the insurance side and the people that were utilizing the drugs paid more. Now it's going to go back to the the individuals that utilize the drugs are going to get the, the, the benefit of the rebate and the insurance will ultimately go up. So it's, but it, can you as a payer put pressure on pharma or does it have to be the federal government? Um, we can to a certain level because of just our ability to design plans and move share based on that. But when it's a single source drug, especially in areas like cancer and others, it's really hard. It's really hard, and so price. I think the Alzheimer's drug that was priced, you know, 18 months ago or two years ago was an example of that. That was fifty thousand dollars. Someone has to say, is that reasonable or not? And you know, a number of studies came out and said seventy-five hundred dollars was the. Again, I don't know if it's fifty or seventy-five hundred, but but there has to be some regulation around that. Yeah. No, and it's it's. Um uh, so, 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 last question, Bruce. You have thirty-five seconds. The, you, what, what, what? You're you're approaching payers as a value-based partner. What's your pitch to payers, uh, to providers, providers rather, as to why they should work with Humana in the way you want to work with them? Um, a few things. I think first, if you want to walk before you run within a value-based a payment model, Medicare Advantage is the best opportunity. It's the most mature. It is the most um, uh, comprehensive from a point of view of sophistication, and the chronic nature of patient populations really fit well to that value-based model. You know, when you get into episodic and uh, you know treatments in the younger population, it's a little harder, um, but but um, it can be done. But the the chronic conditions really make it a much more effective way to to start with value-based. So first, uh, since we are you know basically a Medicare Advantage company, um, we, we've, you know, in, in many years of this, we're, we're, we have an expertise that we can help people. Uh, the second thing, we do feel our responsibility is, is to, for people to be in the surplus. What that means is you're making more money than you would be in, in fee-for-service. And so actually one of the things we measure our teams on is are our providers in surplus? Not just how many People are in Medicare, I mean, that are in value-based, but are they in surplus? And so we really take their success into account, and that's why we invest in technology, information, and people to help them facilitate that. And, and we, we do have a fundamental belief that the healthcare system is not going to be solved by one company. It's a, it's a series of partnerships that are really going it's to... team game. That's right. And, and so if we can facilitate that, you know, both in payment and resources... And in addition, in philosophy, uh, we, we, we feel successful. Awesome. Well, thank you, Bruce, for this special episode of Care Talk, and thank you, Enids, for sponsoring us.